everybody. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel all right. I feel like freelance Dilbert. Freelance. <laughs> How are you doing? I feel like uh, Elmer Fudd at Cabela's the shopping spree. Whoa, dude. Elmer would lose his mind at Cabela's. <laughs> or he would get a, into some crazy hijinks where everyone ends up hating him. Yeah. <laughs> I had an impulse buy yesterday. Uh, bought a like a record player. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but you, did you buy your record player at Cabela's? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not a tactical. Tactical, player. tactical record player. Um, <laughs> how would how would Bugs Bunny function inside of a Cabela's? You'd have a lot of shit to hide behind. I don't know. Yeah. They, well, have you been to a, like one of the big Cabela's? No, but you know what I have? Like a fucking indoor water garden shit. Yeah, I actually have been. You can fish. Yeah, I've indoors and try out. Yeah, there's like I've been to I've been to Cabela's. I don't know if I've been to one of the biggest ones, but I've been to them where they have fish in the store. Like they make like a fake lake that's like an aquarium that it looks like all naturey and stuff. It's like Ocarina of Time. Like you go indoors and it's like the fishing gallery thing. I remember. I remember in high school. I mean, we're starting to sound like people who shop regularly at Cabela's, which that has a certain uh, right leaning <laughs> connotation that I don't think we're associated with. But I remember in high school, our friend Kyle, we, me, and him agreed that uh, obviously you have to have a meeting place for the zombie apocalypse, and our meeting place was Cabela's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be a good place to camp out. Camp out. You got all the ammo there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Craziness. Nice. So, uh, because of the book I did last week, which was uh, Miles from Nowhere and Navi Mm -hmm. Moon, I thought we could bring back the game uh, Styles from Nowhere. You know, based off the uh, layered whatever reference to Cat Stevens. I got it right here. Miles from Nowhere. (laughs) So... (laughs) To Here it uh, is. Ex- Styles explain the rules. Yeah, to explain the rules briefly again. Um, I'm going to open up. I got five books here. Open up to a random page, read a little bit. You got to try and guess the author. And if you're, you know, really good, really lucky, the book mm. uh, as well. You know, it's pretty random. You might get lucky. Yes. Yeah, so what we've discovered, name. I think that this game is going to get harder the more we play it because what we discovered. You know, where I when I first played you the styles from nowhere, when I was the host of the books, I kind of picked books that I thought would be possible for you because I know, you know, Mark and I know all the books, most of the books that we've read and stuff like that. So I think this game is going to get harder the more we do it because we'll get farther and farther away from our lexicon. Like this game would be impossible if you just went to the library and chose random books. Yeah. Right. Um, but we've discovered for the first few rounds that it was actually easier than we thought. But I think that also says something about writing, you know, like if you read any random sentence from which you did at first, the old man in the sea, you can kind of, you get a sense of who, which is impressive, you know, that that's like, that shows an author's style, I think. Yeah. It was almost laughable that I opened up to a random page and it was, you know, some sexual innuendo about the ocean like <laughs> yeah yeah it's like yeah okay this is ending <laughs> all right for, all right first one um let's see page 95 they sat and the cards were dealt in Beatty's sight montag felt the guilt of his hands his fingers were like ferrets that had done some evil and now never rested always stirred and picked and hid in pockets moving from under Beatty's alcohol flame stare if Beatty so much as breathed on them, Montag felt that his hands might wither, turn over to their sides, and never be shocked to life again. They would be bur- buried the rest of his life in his coat sleeves, forgotten. For these were the hands that had acted on their own, no part of him. Here was where the conscious first manifested itself to snatch books, dart off with Job and Ruth and Willie Shakespeare. And now, in the firehouse, these hands seemed gloved with blood. Jesus. I don't think I'm going to get this one, because I just have no idea, but... No, there's a lot of clues here. I know. There's so many names. Do you, okay. No, don't Question. worry about the names. Think yeah. about um, the last part. The firehouse? For, yeah, for these were the hands that had acted on their own. No part of him. 
here was where the conscious first manifested itself to snatch books, guard off with Job and Ruth and Willie Shakespeare. God damn it. Um, what's also distracting me is that the name Beatty is like reminding me of Paul Beatty, who, you know, yeah. I did on the podcast before. Um, I'm I'm truly... Okay, my first question, my only question, my lifeline or whatever, do you know for a fact that I've read this? Yes. Shit. This is just, this is scaring me because now I have a horrible memory. Um, <laughs> you're you're going to... You're going to be so pissed when, when I tell you what it is. It's going to seem obvious. Idle hands, like hands that are acting on their own. And he's like in a firehouse, like stealing books. Um, it sounds something that to, might come stab. from... It sounds something that might come from Pynchon, like V or something. Nope. This is Fahrenheit 451. Think about Shit. books on fire. <laughs> yeah, of course. Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Oh my god, why how am I so stupid? I'm talking about a firehouse. I'm talking about books. Yeah. That's like what? How did that I don't know. I think I need to drink more of this coffee. Okay. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Yeah, we're we're recording. It, it's in the more it's in the morning on yeah. the West Coast. So Well, whatever. It's all good. You know, we can't all be perfect. <laughs> all right, we'll jump jump to the next one here. Page uh page 62. He was always rolling in the mud dirtying his nose, scratching his face, and treading down his shoes. And often he gaped after flies, or ran joyfully after the butterflies of whom his father was the ruler. He pissed in his shoes, shat in his shirt, wiped his nose on his sleeve, sniveled into his soup, paddled about everywhere, drank out of his slipper, and usually rubbed his belly on a basket. He sharpened his teeth on a shoe, washed his hands in soup, combed his hair with a wine bowl, sat between two stools with his arse on the ground, covered himself with a wet sack, drank while eating his soup ate his biscuit without bread, bit as he laughed and laughed as he bit, often spat in the dish, blew a fat fart, pissed against the sun, ducked underwater to avoid the rain, struck the iron while it was cold, had empty thoughts, uh. put on airs, <laughs> threw up his food. <laughs> I you think I knew who this is. <laughs> this was another uh, is this very a, fortunate. Is this Rabelais? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Francois Rabelais is a French monk who was hilarious inappropriate and made really long lists it's gargantua and <laughs> pantagruel right yeah yeah this was from chapter two concerning gargantua's childhood i love those cha that's probably child. my probably my favorite form of chapter titles is that like that old style of um like voltaire did that as well you know where yeah. it's like this chapter in which this happens and something else becomes true and you're like, yeah, what? Like, like <laughs> a little trailer. It's a little trailer for the chapter. But I also like that in a weird way, when I first started reading chapter titles like that from old books, I thought, oh, that just ruined the chapter. But they don't use it that way. <laughs> they don't like it's it's not actually like ruining anything, um, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you read the, you know, table of contents and just yeah. read that instead and it would give you anything. Yeah. Um, the next chapter is concerning Gargantua's hobby horses. Yeah. I okay. love, I, yeah. Um, I love Rabelais. And I really didn't think I was going to get that until the list started. <laughs> it kept going, too. That was another page of that. Oh, it goes uh, for pages. It usually, it sometimes yeah. <laughs> it goes for pages. It's like, stop. All right. You're one for two. This, uh, page 499. But this is a collection, uh, uh, never mind. I won't I won't give that away. The sob seethed off into the night. Arthur watched it go, as stunned as a man might be who, having believed himself to be totally blind for five years, suddenly discovers that he had merely been wearing too large a hat. He shook his head sharply in the hope that it might dislodge some salient fact which would fall into place and make sense of an otherwise utterly bewildering universe. But since the salient fact, if there was one, entirely failed to do this, he set off up to the road again, hoping that a good vigorous walk and maybe even some good painful blisters would help to reassure him of at least his own existence, if not his sanity. Hmm. Uh, wait, I'll read one more. It was 10.30 when he arrived, a fact that he discovered from the steamed and greasy window of the horse and groom pup, in which there had hung for many years a battered old Guinness clock which featured a picture of an emu with a pint glass jammed rather amusingly down its throat. 
Oh my god, I'm getting like deja vu of what this is, but I have, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm not really sure. You did give away something that it's like a collection. Um, shit. The only, yeah, I only have deja vu. The only clue I'm going off of is a collection. What page number did you say? Four ninety nine. Yeah, that gives away things too. Like the, I would have guessed "Slow Learner" by Pynchon, but that doesn't have four hundred ninety-nine pages, no matter what edition it is. <laughs> um, I don't it's know. A collection I, collection of novels. Oh, oh my god! Oh, it's Douglas Adams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was hoping that I w- I wanted to read until I hit another joke. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's something. Was, yeah. Uh, you got a guess for the book? Well, five choices. Hitchhiker's Guide to the the trilogy, <laughs> the so-called trilogy of Later Hitchhiker's on, Guide to the Galaxy. It's uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. Mm. Book four, I think. Book yeah. four. But he always he didn't he always refer to it as a trilogy, even when it was five yeah. books. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So that one, uh, yeah, that style, a lot of jokes, very punchy. Right. Yeah, I knew I had read that, but years and years ago, and yeah, that was a weird feeling. It was like this. Uh, yeah, I remember the emu clock. <laughs> okay, let's see next one. Uh, hold on, hold on. He, okay, page page one ninety seven. Okay, he'd had nothing to do with industry. In fact, until he was thirty. Before that, he pulled a mail order taxidermy business out of bankruptcy, sold his interest in it, and bought a trailer truck. He built his fleet to five trucks when he received a hot market tip, sold his business, invested the proceeds, and tripled his wealth. With this bonanza, he bought the largest yet failing ice cream plant in Indianapolis and put the business in the black inside of a year by building ice cream routes, servicing Indianapolis manufacturing plants during the lunch hour. In another year, he had his trucks carrying sandwiches and coffee along with ice cream. In another year, he was running plant cafeterias all over town, and the ice cream business had become a minor division of Gellhorn Enterprises. Hmm. this is not easy (laughs) no there's Um, no clues there well there are some clues it's about some like guy who's (laughs) a business magnet or something coming up (laughs) the american dream um shit yeah pass i don't know i have no idea (laughs) so this was player piano by kurt vonnegut Ah, okay. I don't know if I've. First I don't think I've read that, but debut it's... novel. Uh, okay, nice. Uh, Vonnegut's first novel spins a chilling tale of engineer Paul Proteus, who must who must find a way to live in a world dominated by a supercomputer and run completely by machines. Yeah, I think I, I you don't think I've read that. this. I just grabbed it though. I think you've meant you when you were doing something about Vonnegut. You mentioned something about his for his debut. Yeah, I did. Uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. Yeah. There's also a little bit about, I mean, industry and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Is that it? Styles from nowhere? Wrong with that. I, got, I got one more here for you. Okay, the final. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Sarah, <laughs> this, um, let me just say, this is in italics. Okay. As I lie and watch the moon on the lonely sea, watch it tug the lonely tide like a comforter over me. The still and faceless moon fills the beach tonight with only a ghost of day, all shadow gray and moonbeam white. And you lie alone tonight, as alone as I. Lonely girl in your lonely flat, well, that's where it's at. So hush your lonely cry. How can I come to you, put out the moon... Send back the tide. The night has gone so gray, I'd lose the way, and it's dark inside. No, I must lie alone till it comes for me, till it takes the sky, the sand, the moon, and the lonely sea. That's really nice. When you mentioned that it's in italics, I thought of, you know, maybe you'd be reading from some pension because he does those italicized uh lyrics and poems but that sounded kind of too smooth for pensions like songs that he makes up have you ever noticed that like that's probably the thing that i get most kind of irked by by pension would you say that sometimes his like 
sometimes his songs work and sometimes I'm just like, you didn't need to put that mm. in. Um, wow. It was, that was kind of nice. Um, but I think I'm going to have to pass again. I'm doing terrible with styles from nowhere. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe the secret is to having someone else read you Pynchon's uh, songs because that was from oh. The Crying of Lot 49. It's one of okay. the uh, Paranoid songs Okay, Serenade. Well, then I didn't, I guess I didn't have to pass because my first <laughs> guess was, was right. Yeah, he does those italicized sections. Some of them I yeah. think are really great. Some of them I think are a bit off. So you need but. to check out some, some Pynchon audiobooks and have someone sing them to you. I think probably I do because some of those... Depending on like the first few lines of some of those, I think I misinterpret the rhythm. Like oh, all the yeah. yeah, all the time. When Do I'm you sing them? Those, sometimes I Do try sing to them sing in your them. Head? Sometimes I try to sing them, but every time I'm reading Pynchon, it comes out as like bad ragtime, and I'm like, I don't oh. know why I'm doing <laughs> that. Like I should try like some other melody or something, but it, yeah, it just comes out to me as like weird. Yeah, I don't think I'm very good at it. <laughs> I don't think he writes in four four. You gotta get some weird funky time signature. Like, yeah, he definitely does. You gotta have a Casio, Casio keyboard with you and hit like the metronome shit. Yeah, or, like bossa nova. <laughs> Just one of the random uh, pre-made rhythms. Um, so it's something yes, that I realize is something. Hard. Yes, it is hard, but it's a good game. It, it, it the thing I like it, it generates good conversations. Um, I've realized recently on the podcast that we don't do the typical radio thing of reinforcing what we do on this podcast. So before it's episode twenty three, which is an odd number, which means Mark goes first. And what we do on this podcast is both I and Mark bring a book to the table. He doesn't know what book I'm doing. I don't know what book he's doing. And we play some games, but also take turns on doing a shitty book report. So Mark, take it away. Episode 23. All right. So, uh, so I sat down to write an outline for my shitty book report this week. Mm. But then, you know what? I realized I was hungry. Uh, but then, you know, I didn't have anything really appealing in the fridge. So, I had to make a quick run to the grocery store. Uh, but then, you know, when I got home, I ate too much. So I had to take a nap. And then when mm-hmm. I woke up the nap, I was too, you know, too groggy. I had to make some coffee. Then I got too amped on caffeine and I just, I couldn't sit still. So I had to go for a walk. Um, so yeah, none of that is actually true, but it's, <laughs> it sets the stage. It sets the stage for the type of book that I read this week, which is, you know, a dark, comedy about procrastination and how Hmm. the attempt at any sort of creative output uh and you know how how self-critique self-doubt random circumstance random health stuff uh general neurosis uh energy levels loneliness or literally anything will you know get in the way of you achieving what you set out to do right like do you ever get so caught up in something you know, needing to be perfect, that it basically paralyzes you and you get nothing done? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I edit film and video for a living and then, you know, but as far as editing some of my own like passion projects and stuff, it's like, yeah, I have some, some paralyzing procrastination in that area, you know, like when I'm going to sit down to do something for a job, it happens because of that sort of, I think that there's like a cognitive dissonance of like, oh, this is like what I do. Um, yeah. Versus what I'm quote unquote making myself do. But also, you know, yeah, procrastination is really interesting because, you know, you end up, you know, you end up like cleaning the shit out of your house and you're like, yeah, just, just to, <laughs> just to avoid the desk, you know? Yeah. You're like, oh, the lighting isn't right in here. Oh, or, you yeah. Know, I obviously can't like write that. this novel right now. Nothing is perfect. Dude, um, that what you just said, you, you that last sentence you just said is my book in a nutshell. It's like okay. perfect. <laughs> so that's exactly how my man Rudolph feels in the book Concrete by mm. Austrian author Thomas Bernhard. Whoa, Austrian. Published in 1982. Okay. Concrete. So let yes. Let me just jump into, uh, I'll read a page from it really quick. That's, uh, you know, touches on that subject here. 
My unhealthy craving for perfection had come to the surface again. It actually makes us ill if we always demand the highest standards, the most thorough, the most fundamental, the most extraordinary, when all we find are the lowest, the most superficial, the most ordinary. It doesn't get us anywhere except into the grave. We see decline where we expect improvement. We see hopelessness where we still have hope. That's our mistake, our misfortune. We always demand everything when in the nature of things we should demand little, and that depresses us. We see somebody on the heights and he comes to grief while he is still on the low ground. We want to achieve everything and we achieve nothing. And naturally we make the highest, the very highest demands of ourselves, completely leaving out of account human nature, which is after all not made to meet the highest demands. The world spirit, as it were, overestimates the human spirit. We are always bound to fail because we set our sights a few hundred percent higher than is appropriate. And if we look, wherever we look, we see only people who have failed because they set their sights too high. But on the other hand, I reflect, where should we be if we constantly set our sights too low? Hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to get nice. <laughs> so I'm going to get to the plot later, the plot of this later, but I mean, you, you pretty much, you covered it with that lessons, <laughs> but, uh, first of all, some, some background on, uh, Bernard. Uh, so he was born in 1931, uh, I think in the Netherlands, but, uh, and he died, he died in February of 1989, which if you remember from our, um, from the episode where I covered Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, mm-hmm. you know, that's another possible transmogrified spirit for me to be reincarnated <laughs> for me to be like <laughs> the reincarnation of, because he died roughly nine months before I was born. Oh, okay. Um, so around the same time as, uh, Daphne du Maurier anyways. So yeah, he was born in the Netherlands in 1931, grew up in Austria in Germany, which is just a terrible time to be a little kid, you know, in Germany, like as a kid, he was, he was like forced into a branch of the Hitler youth. Mm -hmm. Like, could you imagine that is just crazy? Yeah. Um, I mean, that led to a lot of that influenced a lot of his, his writing and everything. He also, you know, had a lot of health problems. Seems to be kind of a similar thing with, with really like introspective writers. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I actually, I think about that all, like, there's just so many um, great and wonderful novelists where it was like, oh, yes, I was like a sickly child. And it's like, that that might be one of the only positive things out of laying in bed for half of your childhood is some of them become amazing novelists. Yeah, it probably changes the way you think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've only read this book from him, but from everything I've read about Thomas Bernhard, uh, his style is pretty consistent throughout his works, which is to say they're all essentially very long monologues or like rants, you know, about life and about so many different things. But they tend to be pessimistic, but definitely humorous at the same time. Like um, and he, you know, gets some good points across. And so apparently the, the theme of concrete is very similar to the theme of other works in which someone is really trying to reach the unreachable trying to achieve perfection, but never really getting there. Uh, and either time wins out or they destroy themselves in the pursuit. And um, I think he he lays down perfection as something that, you know, once you achieve perfection, there's nothing left to achieve. So perfection is essentially death. Mm. Um, so he, so he, wrote, he wrote a fair amount of uh, novels and plays. Most of them were very controversial in Austria. Uh, some examples of other ones... Um, include the novels Correction, uh, The Loser, and Woodcutters. Okay. I guess w- Woodcutters is very close to Concrete as far as the, the, the you know theme. That's what I've read. Uh, and so he sort of pulled a prank on his country after his death. So, like, he was very controversial in Austria, and, like, he would always write about, you know, the hypocrisies of the uh, government and, you know, calling them out for their Nazi past and everything. Hmm. And he, so when he died, he like put some, he put some sort of clause in his, in his will or something like that. He apparently labeled uh, posthumous literary emigration. Whoa. Uh, and he put it into his will that his works could no longer be published or, you know, put out on the stage in, in the border of, uh, or like within the borders of Austria. Whoa, that's like some serious uh, <laughs> power move. Yeah, I've never heard of something like that. 
I mean, it's kind of the opposite of uh, like uh, Milan Kundera and um, Ivan Klima uh, that I covered in that Love and Garbage episode where they were banned in mm-hmm. within their country and were only successful outside. Right. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, but to be more specific about the actual plot of Concrete, this book is about a man from Vienna, Austria, named Rudolf. And, you know, he wants nothing more in life than to write a book about his favorite favorite composer, which is the German composer um, Felix Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. Do you know I've him? He- I've heard of Mendelssohn. I've heard that, like, probably in a Frasier episode or something. <laughs> so I mean, he, he's where I get all my culture. Yeah, well, he he has a, I mean a lot of a lot of music, um, some stuff from like Shakespeare plays and stuff. But I think his his number one contribution to the modern world might be the uh, the wedding song, <laughs> wedding march. Yeah, this this guy's a popular guy. Yeah, so Felix Mendelssohn. Um, so this book, you know, it kind of has a similar start as like the third policeman. Why do we play that? Why do we play that wedding shit? Like everybody comes out to the same Mendelssohn song. Like that's (laughs) in the year, like 20 in the year, like 3000. Will everybody, will every wedding start with like thriller? (laughs) We'll see someone's, someone's got to kick it off. (laughs) Um, so yeah, similar kind of start as the third policeman where this guy is just obsessed. He wants to write the definitive work Mm. on, um, on Mendelssohn. But the only problem is he's been at the shit for 10 years and he hasn't been able to write one sentence down. You know, he's got notes, he's got notes that he jots down and then he trashes them. He burns them or throws them out. He's got stacks of books sorted by importance, you know, of of the, Mm -hmm. the subject matter. He's got more funds and free time than anyone. He's got all of the interest and adoration that the subject, you know, requires. But in reality, he's a middle-aged man. You know, he's running out of time. His health is failing him, and he can't settle mm-hmm. on a first sentence. God, this book so sounds I... terrifying. <laughs> this is like, this is the... my apartment. <laughs> I know the, uh, the writing community can relate mm-hmm. to this feeling. So... Um, Due to the dread of making a podcast every week, I picked a short book. This book is only <laughs> about 150 pages long, but the first 100 are basically what I just covered. You know, on the surface, it might not sound too appealing, but it's generally very entertaining reading. And this guy Rudolph is just so deep in his own head that it becomes hilarious. Um, he's you know he's so caught up in getting everything right to the last detail that he just accomplishes nothing. Um, and even you taking some notes on most of that? <laughs> yes, I am actually. And, you uh, can hear that. <laughs> yeah. You feel like you're at the, you feel uh, like you're at the therapist or something. Yeah. Um, so even, you know, e- even when the external conditions are like ideal for writing for his creativity, he'll just let his mind wander on the most inane shit. Like the book starts out and he's just like, you know, it's, I know it's failed me for 10 years, but I resolved to start writing this January 27th at precisely 4 a.m. You know, the conditions are perfect. I couldn't think of a better time to start. Mm. And then say, you know, oh, oh, it's cold in here, you know. I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, and, you know, it comes off that he's basically just looking for excuses. You know, he's been looking for excuses in every direction for all or, you know, most of his life. There are some hints that he was once happy and maybe more productive, but all that is, you know, long gone. Uh, and it's kind of funny. One, like one of his biggest focuses is, or his focal points is his sister, who is, you know, everything he is not. Mm-hmm. She is successful in business. Um, she can manage social situations and tasks, whereas he is, you know, immobilized by them. It's not just the book, you know. It's a lot. It seems like everything in his life is kind of that right. way. And, you know, all at once he hates her and he loves her. Like he can blame her for walking into the room at the wrong moment and destroying his creative momentum. That's, you know, just a bullshit excuse. Right. Yeah. And it's an incredible look at how love and hate are the same emotion with just like a different weight behind them. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I love to draw very dumb comparisons to things, and it's very stupid, but this part of the book, because there's such a big focus on his sister and stuff, it reminded me of the show Dexter's Laboratory. <laughs> All right. Yeah, where Dexter's, lab. Dexter's sister, Dee Dee, would just show up and, you know... So, I mean, even down to the voice, like I attributed that accent to him. Yeah. Like, you know, he's kind of got some little Austrian. <laughs> please, <laughs> Dexter's please. got a little tinge. Yeah, he does. Um, you know, it's re- that's really stupid. That was. You should look up if that if that you know if they knew about this book because I often. You know, uh, like my book last uh, last week, Shadow of the Torturer, I was like, this book feels like that video game Torment. And then the more I looked it up, the more it was that they were inspired by that. So I would wonder if the people who created Dexter's Lab knew about this novel. <laughs> um, yeah, he must be based off of some kind of, you know, European scientist or whatever, or some kind mm-hmm. of, It's it's got that kind of influence to it. But um, I mean, well, I drew the parallel and like dd dd's always fucking up dexter's stuff like for real but this guy's just like you know he's he's creating anything he's just getting he's just getting upset you know because Mm -hmm. probably outwardly because he can't accomplish anything right but um that was the (laughs) it's really stupid that was the first cd i ever bought was dexter's lab the musical time machine whoa (laughs) that's 1998 (laughs) was a different time um anyways so concrete it's uh i i don't really understand the name i thought that maybe i would it would click and i would go oh that's why it's called this but Mm -hmm. maybe it's uh i don't know i'll think about it'll come to me later but it's partly you know a study on writer's block it's partly a look at jealousy and envy um but it's also a really close examination of the uh vulnerability of the creative mind and when you learn more about the author himself, you realize that it's sort of a self-parody, maybe closer to like a diary or a memoir than he really lets on. Like, I think he had these same kind of health issues as the character. And obviously, he's an, also an author. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, creative people tend to be self-deprecating. And I don't know, it's just a pretty unique way for him to um, tell on himself a little bit, possibly. Right. Uh, I just want to read another quick passage from the book. I think you get the idea of the style. It's it's a rant. It's it's the guy's internal thoughts. And it's pretty, he's pretty low, <laughs> which I'll get into right here. I wrote in the margins here, uh, misanthropic rant. Nice. The world has become colder by a few degrees. I don't wish to calculate by how many. And people are that bit crueler and more inconsiderate. But this is a perfectly normal course of events which we were bound to reckon with and which we could predict because we're not stupid. But the sick don't like allying themselves with the sick or the old with the old. They run away from one another to their destruction. Everyone wants to be alive. Nobody wants to be dead. Everything else is a lie. In the end, they sit in an armchair or in some wing chair and dream dreams of the past which bear not the slightest relation to reality. There ought to be only happy people. All the necessary conditions are present but there are only unhappy people. We understand this only late in life. While we are young and without pain, we not only believe in eternal life, but have it. Then comes the break, then the breakdown, then the lamentation over it, and the end. It's always the same. At one time, I enjoyed cheating the inland revenue. Now I don't even want to do that, I told myself. Everybody is welcome to see my hand. This is how I feel at the moment, at this moment. The question is really only how we are to survive the winter as painlessly as possible and the much crueler spring, and the summer we've always hated. Then autumn takes everything away from us again. I might call myself relatively independent, but shackled and imprisoned like everybody else, impelled by disgust rather than possessed by curiosity. We always spoke of clarity of mind, but never had it. I don't know where I got this sentence from, perhaps from myself, but I've read it somewhere. Perhaps it will turn up among my notes sometime. We say notes to avoid embarrassment although we secretly believe that these sentences which we blushingly call notes are really more than that. But we believe the same of everything to do with ourselves. This is how we swing ourselves over the abyss, not knowing how deep it is. 
and in fact the depth does not matter if everybody falls to its death, which we know to be the case. At one time, as far back as I can remember, I used to ask other people questions. The first person was quite certainly my mother, until I finally drove my parents to the verge of madness with my questions. Then suddenly I only asked myself questions, but only when I was sure of being ready with an answer to my question. Everybody is a virtuoso on his own instrument, but together they add up to an intolerable cacophony. The word cacophony was incidentally a favorite of my maternal grandfather's, and the phrase he hated more than any other was thought process. Another of his favorite words was character. During these reflections, it suddenly struck me for the first time how extraordinarily comfortable my armchair is. Three <laughs> weeks ago, it was a piece of junk, but now that it's been reupholstered, it's quite luxurious. Uh, here we go. <laughs> so this guy, you know, he, there's no off switch. He, he's just neurotic and all over the place. But like the the prose that you know Bernhard, you know, outputs is is really powerful at times yeah i like that i like the thing that he said about um you know we all have we pose the questions that we already have an answer to yes <laughs> yeah that's really that's really interesting you know it, yeah. it's like a, it would be a special talent to kind of ask questions that you don't you know um existential sort of phil philosophical questions that you don't have the answer to but i think yeah we're we're in our comfort zones a lot yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, I mean, check out some uh, Bernhard for some funny, but tragic, but funny navel gazing and, you know, internal monologue. And I'm mm -hmm. definitely interested to check out a more long form version of this, possibly uh, the woodcutters. I might grab that one. Nice. Um, so to close it out. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I was going to give a one star review. Yeah, I, I have, before your one-star review, I have a question that came up because obviously concrete is about the perfect condition to write. Yes. We've talked about the perfect condition to read. Off the top of your head, what do you <laughs> think would be the perfect condition to write? And actually, this is something Stephen King has also written about in his book on writing. Hmm, to write. Oh, I, I remember, I remember a few things that I picked up from on writing, which is do not face a window, mm -hmm. face a wall. So mm -hmm. you got to face a wall. Um, I like to have some, some quiet instrumental music playing. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, uh, Eric Satie, you know, some of that. Eric Satie, uh, what's that? Yeah, uh, I wish I could play it, but um, you, you'd know it instantly if you heard it. Mm. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it, gym, gymnopedie or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure. French composer. Okay. Um, uh, fresh, fresh cup of coffee. Fresh cup of coffee, yeah. I agree with the instrumental uh, thing. I can't write with with lyrics going, or read with lyrics going on in the background. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, have to be on a caffeine surge. That's pretty much it for me. <laughs> a nice i don't know nice temperature <laughs> yeah i think my condition my perfect conditions for writing would be my same conditions for reading but with different different instruments you know like a a storm outside you don't have any responsibilities you know you're not going anywhere and uh you know time to write but yeah give us that one star review of concrete okay uh there you know i was excited to search for a bad review for this because the style I thought would lead to some people absolutely losing their minds about it. And I wasn't that wrong. Um, so user Bob, he just said one word, which was yuck. Um, <laughs> yuck. Concrete, yuck. <laughs> and then uh, user Dean left a sort of, it's a sort of meta one-star review here. And, you know, see if you pick up on what he's trying to do. Not that dark, not that funny, not that weird, not that intelligent, no depth. I'm complaining. This book is depressing. After stopping by Rudolph's house, it wasn't long before I was saying, can we go now? For some strange reason, after reading this book, I had the urge to fly to Los Angeles and go see a LA Kings hockey game. I know it would have been nice if, Ber if Bernhard would have moved to Phoenix. I hate the fog. Well, I can handle the fog, even enjoy it for one day, maybe even two days a week, but not a whole week. A whole novel? No. I did like Bernhard's The Loser, but I'll listen to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys tomorrow. <laughs> So he's kind of writing his own Bernhard uh, <laughs> uh, tangent. It sounds like he loved it. Sounds like he loved it, yeah. That's an ironic one star. The meta one star, that's nice.
Um, we should, so yeah, that's should it. start uh, writing those. Concrete. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more, one more thought about this, which is, uh, I can't think about Austria without thinking about like that, uh, scene in dumb and dumber when he's like, Oh, it's a lovely, <laughs> Put a- another lovely accent. Put another on the Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> lovely accent you got. What is that? Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm sure people, I'm sure Austrian people in the U S hear that all the time. Um, yeah. And I actually, oh, I, I get really pumped. Myself. Because uh, some of our listeners, but also Mark, you know that I lived abroad for a little bit. Uh, it's really exciting to meet people outside. Because in in the American landscape, we have a lot of assumptions about what content people have kind of grown up with or, or consumed or anything like that. But there's a whole mess of people on this earth who haven't seen Dumb and Dumber. So uh, <laughs> it's really interesting to kind of like talk to them just about weird little things like that. But yeah, I'm sure Austrian people hear about Dumb and Dumber when they come to the U.S. all the time. They're probably like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, OK, so my book this week, you're, you're giving me a good segue, Mark, because Concrete cool. um, was about, you know, writing procrastination or kind of not being able or you know collecting notes obsessively and then eventually i mean i assume that you know even though it was autobiographical he got over that and wrote a few novels which good for him but i'm sure some people dream their whole lives of getting the novel out of themselves and then never do um my book this week is the exact opposite of that so um my book this week is by a relatively young author named sally rooney and her novel normal people which was published in 2018 have you heard of this book yeah i have seen a lot of people recommend this on twitter Right. So this is a hot book right now. This is like yeah. hot shit. Like people are, I, when I, well, I've been, she's an Irish writer. She's from Western Ireland. So in the UK right now, that in itself has political implications. Um, but does the cover, does the cover have like a pool on it or something? It's blue and green with like a, the, the, uh, like a drawing, like an outline of a, of a young woman's face. Okay. Um, but this is like, you know, this is like a subway book right now. This is, you know, you're riding the tube in London and two or three people you've seen holding normal people. And it's, you know, it's it's hot. It's hot right now. Out um, the streets. Yeah. That Hansel is so hot right now. Um, <laughs> so normal people, first of all, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. And like I said, it's the opposite of concrete, which you just talked about, because Sally Rooney is... Younger than we are, which is not easy to deal with. She was born in 1991 and she's currently 28 years old. Um, So that in itself is something to to reconcile with. What what year were you born, Mark? I feel like you're like... 89. 89. Right on the cusp of 90. Yeah, so she's two years younger than we are. Good for you, Sally. No, (laughs) like so going into the novel, I actually do think that there was a little bit of like a tinge of that going on, you know, had to get over myself. Um, So this book is I I would say, you know, I'm bringing it to the podcast because it is, in my opinion, it's worthy of its praise. But obviously a book that's going on right now that is so big right now she was long listed for the man booker prize for normal people which is a way that it got to, but it actually got to me through a recommendation from my fiance daria she said there's this book like just explode she's in london and she's like there's this book that's just like exploding all over the uk like i've seen multiple people holding it called normal people so um i wanted to check it out you know because of her age, because of how great of a writer she is already, I think that this is her second full-length novel. Um, there's a lot of buzz. You know, The Guardian called this like a future classic work of fiction. Um, pretty much every major publication you can think of. Like, you know, that's how I started out describing Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith has also praised Sally Rooney um, for for a few of her books. So, you know, this is this is a big deal. Like she's she's at the height of her career right now. This book is being adapted into uh, a, ser- a TV series by Hulu, which I don't know if I 100 percent agree with that. But apparently she's involved with the project. So that's kind of cool. You know, I like when authors get involved 
And um, so that's a little bit of the background of it. Actually, I don't know. I don't really know too much biographical information about Sally Rooney because her, you know, her Wikipedia right now is just like she's this famous millennial, like blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah, new, new on the scene. Yeah. So um, this that first of all, that word millennial gets bandied about pretty often with her. You know, the first millennial novelist and oh my god she really understands a generation and this is crazy and whatever um i would agree with that um she's she's definitely you know she's writing about love relationships and romance in a political time that is that is pretty unique and you know people are just excited to have someone who is as good a writer as she is, but is as young as she is. So like I said, when I first started reading the book, I kind of had to get over that, especially because there are elements of this book that are mm, the first, like, first of all, it's only like a 270 page book in hardcover format. So the paperback is probably even less. You can read this. I read this book in three separate sittings. You could easily read it in one. There's a lot of people you know, out there online saying, you know, yeah, you can read it in one sitting or I read it in one sitting. It really blew me away, blah, blah, blah. Um, I would say that this novel really picks up in its second and third acts, so to speak. Like if you broke it down into beginning, middle and end, I would say the middle and the end are were much more important to me than the beginning. Um, probably because I was getting over my own resentments for how young the novelist is. Uh, you know, this is a story that starts out with two characters, Marion and Connell. Um, they're growing up in a small, uh, not like small, but a, a town on in, in and a county in Western Ireland where, you know, the biggest the biggest kind of city that they can conceivably get to is Dublin, which Dublin is a great international city, but it's not, you know, a New York City or a, or a London or anything like that. So... These two characters, it starts with them in high school. And when you first start reading it, it's like you're wondering if you're reading some, you know, Fault in Our Stars, like YA fiction where you're like, okay, these two, you know, sort of aloof characters are dancing around the idea that they are, you know, in a relationship in high school. And there's a lot of sort of... um, social and like identity politics that she kind of crams into the first part of the book because they're going to be very important later on as their relationship develops but it's the get like you know they have a very modern youthful relationship um and there's a lot of push and pull that is going on with their with the way that you know their friends perceive them at school with the way their parents perceive them and stuff like that um connell who is uh you know he is from, you know, a not very well-off family, whereas Marion is from a rich family. It's even further convoluted because the way that they know each other so well is that Connell's mother is Marion's house cleaner. So, like, she is one of the rich kids in town. She has, like, a big mansion. There are... They, they you know it alludes to the fact that her father passed away, but was like a very kind of rich person. Her mother is also very well to do. So just right from the get go, that context is sort of like interesting. Um, Connell is someone who is on the soccer team or in this novel, as it's known football on the football team. And uh, you know, he's relatively popular. He, they start having sex, um, you know, in high school and they keep it a secret from everyone. Like basically Connell is the popular kid. She is the brainy, intelligent, rich girl who he kind of doesn't want his friends to know that he's sleeping with her. And, um, what's in, what I notice right now about, you know, me describing this novel is that I've probably described more plot points than I ever have on the podcast before. And that's because, (laughs) and that's because she is, you do get into it. Like this is, this is a very modern book in the sense that it's a page turner and that you are kind of almost experiencing this soap opera or what seems to be a soap opera for the first half of the novel, but then starts to get really psychologically deep and, and kind of further as you get into the into the rhythm of it. But um, what the novel really is about is how we perceive ourselves and how it affects us that we 
how we think other people perceive us. She's exploring those themes probably mostly through the character Connell, who is constantly, you know, you 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 love and hate both of these characters. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reasons to hate Connell. Like he's basically having sex with this girl and kind of throwing her away during high school, basically just saying like, yeah, she's great or whatever, but I just have sex with her and don't tell anyone because it would be socially awkward if it, you know, if it came out that me and Marion were together and that's sort of fucked up. And, and I think that if there was one weakness about the, the kind of, beginning of this novel is that there is a little bit of hindsight is 2020 they seem a little bit more mature than they could possibly be in their own heads being high school kids and you know (laughs) and not really knowing what the hell is going on but what's interesting is like i said as you get into the middle and the end of the novel all of this stuff that she crams into you at first becomes really important later because they go on to go to Trinity College in Dublin. They're two smart kids. They get scholarships. They do like really important things. But what really starts to get interesting, the real kind of meat of this novel and and what a lot of the reviewers are talking about is that she's a super good writer at getting you super involved in these characters and young love and stuff like that. But she peppers in how politics and economics and capitalism really actually does affect your relationships whether you want to acknowledge that or not so like i said like well like i said you know connell's mom they initially met because his mom is her housekeeper so like that you know there's all these different things that have been set up throughout basically what you're dealing with here is two people who kind of really can't stay away from each other and they are in love with each other but they have such different ways of communicating and seeing themselves that even as they develop as mature people, like semi-mature people going throughout the university experience, a lot of kind of uh, barriers get put in the way because of how someone from Connell's socioeconomic class thinks of himself and like what he can accept as you know, he's trying to figure out how to behave. And at the same time, Marion's trying to figure out how to behave. But they have kind of different value systems because for Marion, she's at college. She doesn't pay her tuition. She doesn't pay her, you know, her rent and anything like that. And like money is sort of like an ephemeral, like I've always had access t- type of thing. Whereas she has more kind of family based psychological issues. Connell is a little bit more grounded, but he doesn't have the money and access to just kind of hang around with her and her rich friends all the time. He has to work and stuff like that. So think of Uptown Girl. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) And and that all plays into this thing where, you know, and like I said, she's also an incredibly talented storyteller and, and she's good at developing characters. So all of this is happening, you know, and but you also have moments of like, Oh, I hate Connell. Like he's such a dick, you know, or, or Marion herself. She might be, um, a little bit, uh, victim to one of your pet peeves, Mark, which is Manic Pixie dream character. (laughs) Um, Marion is, and, uh, you know, that might be being unfair though, because, because, um, you know, the, the people who are reading a very uh, cutting edge novel might be prey to the idea that a manic pixie dream character is this girl who even from a high school age was reading political articles, but then also investigating this. So the ideological, you know, uh, leanings of the people who wrote them so that she can fully understand, you know, the conflict in Gaza or, you know, like stuff like that comes up. In yeah. The book. And she has a, she has a pet flying squirrel that has, yeah, <laughs> she, it doesn't go that far. And I've, and you know, there were a few sentences in there where I thought about your manic pixie, um, <laughs> your, your manic pixie, uh, pet peeve, but it really doesn't get to that point. You know, she, she, she is a great character and what, it, what gets crazier throughout the novel and something that I need to, that people that reviewers have praised Sally Rooney for, but also I will praise her for is that she, she'd be the opposite. You know how Murakami always wins that award for awkward sex scenes. Yeah. So Sally Rooney would be the opposite. She can weave sex Ooh. into her narratives that in a very like 
when you're reading it, you're like, I, f- you feel it. Like it's, you know, she says the right things about sex and also like, um, you know, dominance and submission and like other things that really start to get crazy. Marion goes down like a path where she gets together with a few guys who aren't Connell, who are very sexually domineering and you worry about her and you worry for her, but also everything that's happening also makes sense. So there was basically, you know, there was one point that I made in my book that, you know, I started reading the novel and then I said, you know, I actually wrote down on the page, we're not in Kansas anymore because the first part of the book is sort of like, <laughs> oh, he liked me and I didn't like him and we were having sex, but blah, blah, blah. She's also really good at weaving in the like the, the reason why people praise her as a millennial novelist, not only for her age, is she weaves in the Internet really well with, you know, oh, you know, Marion started dating this new person. So Connell has full access to what he looks like and what he does because of Facebook and stuff like that. Um, nice. That but, cancels out my pet peeves then. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. She definitely <laughs> saves herself. Like oh, when I first started reading, I was like, "Oh man, like I get, like, am I going to be pissed off that half the world and is is uh, you know half the UK is reading this book?" But I, I wasn't in the end. Um, the part where I wrote, "We're not in Kansas anymore," is um, there's there's a part where Marion is leaving the apartment of one of her boyfriends who is very sexually domineering, and you're kind of like terrified of him. And uh, this paragraph kind of struck me as you know this is towards the end like almost towards the end of the book like 100 pages away from or 50 pages away from being the end and uh, she says could he really do the gruesome things he does to her and believe at the same time that he's acting out of love is the world such an evil place that love should be indistinguishable from the basest and most abusive forms of violence outside her breath rises in a fine mist and the snow keeps falling like a ceaseless repetition of the same infinitesimally small mistake so after that, I said, Jesus Christ, we're not really, you know, I, I know this young woman from her high school age. And now I'm reading about how her, you know, romance with this guy, Lucas, is like a sex, like a sadosexual relationship. And it's like it's fucking it's it hits you and it's and it's hard and stuff like that. So um, and and that all has to go back with, you know, her psychological profile of like her family is pretty abusive. So I'm going to read three paragraphs that aren't from the novel. I'm going to read some selections of, you know, the glowing praise that uh, that Sally Rooney has gotten. So this first one is from a review of Normal People in The Atlantic by Annalisa Quinn. I thought that this was a good uh, shout out to how politics play into the into the uh plot of her novels. Politics in Rooney's novels are often ambient rather than explicit, submerged under the surface of a love story about, as Rooney writes, two people who over the course of several years apparently could not leave one another alone, Marion and Connell, who spend four years alternately pursuing and withdrawing from each other. Uh, and I highlighted another thing, but Rooney has, what Rooney has is something different, a seismographer's attention to the dips and tremors of social value, the way that as the British writer Olivia Lang wrote, beauty, intelligence, and class are currencies that fluctuate as unpredictably as pounds and dollars, which is definitely true. And I definitely connected with that thing that that sentence they said in the um, Atlantic as she has a seismographer's attention to the dips and tremors of social value, which is definitely true. Like there's just these beautiful paragraphs and beautiful chapters where it's like at first Connell was on top because he was the popular kid in school. And then they go to college and all of a sudden, you know, Marion is like the weird intelligent girl that lots of guys want to sleep with. And he has to reckon with that because he was treating her like shit only like a few months ago. Um, another great a thing that Sally Rooney is really great at is scene switching where she can like the whole novel, um, every chapter goes back and forth kind of lightly in either Marion's perspective or lightly in Connell's perspective. It only moves forward in time, but she's also really good at recalling scenes like with one word where they go forward in time, but then recalling events in the past. So she's a very deft writer at that. Uh, Lauren Sarazen in the Washington Post says, Rooney's main appeal lies in her apt observations of young love. Even as technological advances have made it easier to communicate, so much remains unspoken. The misunderstandings that could be easily cleared up with a straightforward conversation are rendered into emotional stalemates 
and major events on which the plot hinges. Maintaining a close third-person point of view, Rooney shifts between Connell and Marion, offer, offering readers agonizing windows into the things that they keep from each other. Um, which is definitely true. There's lots of points in the novel where you're like, oh my god, just fucking tell her what you're feeling. <laughs> um, but that the... And normally that would piss me off. Like, I don't like reading or seeing... Um, stuff, you know, in sitcoms or movies where it's like, oh, this could all be, you know, like like in Lost, which you've mentioned before, like some of the plot points in Lost could be cleared up if they would just fucking talk to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a little bit of an element of that, but not really because of how deft she is at weaving in the idea that the reason that, you know, Connell is the way he is is because he's so self-conscious, which is born from his kind of position in life as like you know the the girl that he loves the most is his mom's employer and it's like a fucked up relationship where she has that over him but he had you know and and what do those resentments mean uh there's yeah. a book review in npr by heller McAlpin. um i highlighted this paragraph that says rooney's dialogue like her descriptive prose, prose is slightly ironic alternately 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 evasive and direct but always articulate it cuts to the heart she seems remarkably comfortable writing about sex even uncomfortable sex and she seems seem, seeming seamlessly integrates well-crafted text emails and facebook posts into her narratives like the digital native she is yet while rooney may write about apparent aimlessness and all the distractions of our age her novels are laser focused and word perfect they build power by a steady accretion of se often simple declarative sentences that tracked minuscule shifts in feelings um, hundred percent true. Like as you get towards the middle and end of this book, one sentence will be really, really like, because you know, Marion and Connell's history so well, I think I remember there's one scene where they're drinking with some college friends while they're like on the, um, they're meeting up, you know, abroad as often people in the UK do. They like take a trip around Europe sometime before, during, or after university. And, um, you know, at that point in the novel, you're just so focused on how people react. It's like when Marion gives one look to her current boyfriend, you're like, oh, fuck, he's like abusing her. Like, you just know it because of her history and stuff like that. And yeah. it's uh, it's really powerful. There's a lot of fucked up shit that happens. Um, another thing, like the thing that's great about it is like I'm talking about, there's all this young love. There's this capitalism. There's this internet shit. There's politics going on where she's talking about Israel, Gaza. She's talking about UK versus Ireland. So it feels very modern, which is a great, it's a great time to have a great novel, which I think why a lot of people are attracted to it. But she also weaves in other things like literary criticism. Connell is going to school as an English major and he's learning about his love of writing. So like, when he writes emails to Marion through their communications throughout the years, you start to see that he starts to fall in love with the act of writing, which is really awesome. Maybe something that uh, the main character of Concrete could <laughs> could uh, <Yeah. laughs> could could learn to deal with. Um, but here's another great paragraph which I highlighted. This is about the politics of literature, which I think is a good thing for a literature pod, uh, podcast. And also something that I've addressed on the podcast before about how, you know, a book is a fashion statement and stuff like that. Yeah. So I will read this uh, paragraph. He knows that a lot of literary people in college see books primarily as a way of appearing cultured. When someone mentioned the austerity protest that night in the stag's head, Sadie threw her hands up and said, not politics, please. Connell's initial assessment of the reading was not disproven. It was culture as class performance. Literature fetishized for its ability to take educated people on false emotional journeys so that they may afterward feel superior to the uneducated people whose emotional journeys they like to read about. Even if the writer himself was a good person and even if his book really was insightful, all books were ultimately marketed as, as status symbols and all writers participated to some degree in this marketing. Presumably, this was how the industry made money. Literature and the way it appeared at these public readings had no potential as a form of resistance to anything. Still, Connell went home that night and read over some notes he had been making for a new story and he felt the old beat of pleasure inside his body, like watching a perfect goal. Like the rustling movement of light through leaves, a phrase of music from the window of a passing car, life offers up these moments of joy despite everything. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're gonna, if you're looking for a book that is extremely current, that's going to take you on an emotional roller coaster, that is going to fuck you up a little bit about the people that you have 
fallen in love with or had sex with or, you know, all these different things. A lot of you'll be thinking about your relationships from the past. You'll be thinking about your current relationships and how they're going into the future. All the while, Sally Rooney kind of, you know, swings in, you know, hammer hits of these different kind of things that you have to question and you have to talk about. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I think it's justified that people are excited for her career because this extremely young person seems to be very prescient at the moment. So we'll see if that continues into the future, but that's a lot of fucking pressure, man. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> so know, is uh, this from uh, late last year. Uh, that- let me- yeah, it is from late last year. It's, um, I think that's what it was, right? Let me look up the exact publication date because, but I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, worthy of all this attention that I've seen. Yeah, it definitely. I can't find the exact publication date, but yeah, it's twenty. No, it's it's twenty eighteen. Yeah, it might be late last okay. year. I'm, I'm yeah, not just sure. I mean, just last year. Yeah, so yeah. Um, but it's the second book though, that's tough. Yeah, it is tough, and it, and she's super young, and I think a lot of you know she must be feeling some amount of pressure. Um, so I'll close out with my one star review from Nicole M on Amazon. One star, 13 bucks that could have been flung out the window. After, re- <laughs> After reading the reviews and the high praise about this author, I was excited to get this book. The next great young writer, they said. Waste of time. The characters are flat. The content, there really is no plot, is boring and insipid. And the mechanics of her writing are so rote, it becomes more than an annoyance. I absolutely hated this book and hated that it sucked hours of my life reading it. I kept hoping it would get better, but it just droned on. If this is what millennial writers have to offer, I will begin reading the classics or authors from previous generations who knew how to write. Horrible. <laughs> so nicole and paperback, paperback yeah. selfie yeah that's what this is yeah exactly and i'm sure that there's probably a ton of those out there um but <laughs> you know sorry nicole m i didn't agree maybe if the first third of the novel had continued throughout the rest but nicole you're out of your goddamn mind because it gets really deep and really meaningful <laughs> nice yeah, so uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. Uh, you can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter. And we're actually officially on iTunes now because we took all the swearing out of the title of our name. So please search us, SBR The Podcast, wherever you're looking for your podcast. So at SBR The Podcast, you can also email us, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>